Hey, what's up? My name is Teemu Arena. I'm the creator of Biker Summit and host of the Biker's Live Show. So today we are diving deep into productivity and how you can build something called an external brain. And this is something that is very close to my heart. As you know, in the Biker's Handbook, we have the work chapter and we touch a bunch of different time management techniques and how you can think about your productivity in new ways. But my guest today is Boomer Anderson, who is a performance advisor and partner at Decoding Superhuman. He also has an amazing podcast if you're interested in well-being and how, you, how to take all of that new level. Boomer is also going to Biocer Summit. He will be speaking topic is the same that we're going to be touching into. Oh, my audio is occasionally. Okay, I'm going to monitor it myself. No. Just a second here. <clears throat> yeah, I hope the audio will be fine from now on. Anyway, so let's get back to the topic. So developing an external brain for better performance. And Boomer is a top specialist when it comes to holistic health and nutrition and also how you can take epigenetics into account. Um, but we're going to be diving deep into productivity today. And if you're coming to Biohacker Summit, it's our five-year anniversary. We are organizing the Biker Summit uh, for the eighth time, uh, for the fifth year, and it will be the biggest production so far. And if you go to the website at bikersummit.com, you can find more information about this event. Uh, there is about 15, 16 keynotes already uh, booked for this event. Uh, among them uh, is Boomer Anderson, Max Lugover, and uh, one of the new uh, People. I just signed up is medical doctor Molly Malouf from San Francisco, uh, a doctor who knows a lot about biomarkers and how to optimize your health based on your blood work. But also uh, she's a doctor who looks in a very holistic way on these things, has also contributed to a lot of the discussion around the use of psychedelics uh, in medicine. We have Dr. Marcel Münster coming, who is uh, creating and advising World Economic Forum on digital health topics and especially around uh, how we can avoid startup founders burning out uh, doing the work that they love, which is a huge epidemic. So today's topic about productivity is definitely helping everyone who is pushing the boundaries, is trying to get things done and uh, is maybe struggling between the work amount and recovery and sleep and many other things uh, because they don't nece necessarily manage themselves. So when you say that you don't have enough time, most likely what is going on is uh, that you have time, but the way how you organize your life around the time available is not necess necessarily supporting what you try to achieve. And uh, so 
when it comes to time management, that is one big topic when we talk about productivity. But with that, uh, without further ado, let's um, invite Boomer on the show. Welcome, Boomer. How are you doing, man? Tamu, it's so glad to be here. I'm a huge fan for a very long time, so it's an honor to be on the podcast. Great. So you have a background in finance. So you were uh, a top uh, executive at an international bank, and you've been traveling all around the world. You've been helping to raise... Uh, millions of dollars uh, for different ventures. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that background and what made you shift your focus in life? <laughs> uh, it's kind of a funny story. And I'll try and be brief because this could be long. But, you know, I've always been obsessed with this idea of performance, specifically, you know, going back to as soon as my high school days, looking at athletics or academics and simply seeking to reach for more to perform better. That level or focus on performance brought me to Wall Street after graduating from university. When after a couple of years I was sent to Singapore and interestingly enough, if I worked for a different bank, it would have been a different story, but my boss left and at a very young age, I ended up becoming head of a Southeast Asia financing desk for a bulge bracket investment bank. And that experience brought with it a lot of interesting things. I was with a team of three people covering 14 countries. We were helping everything from corporations to governments raise money. And over that period of time, I was constantly traveling. And that travel being on the road really just sort of piqued my interest in productivity. Like I said, I've been interested in performance forever. But in order to get the most out of a team, out of my person, out of myself, one of the things that I began to focus on was productivity and productivity theory. But needless to say, you know, there, there's a story here because after four years of doing this job and traveling to over 40 countries, I was at this time exploring the realm of biohacking. And, you know, for me, biohacking back then was, you know, how, what do I do to feel good? do my job better, and really just perform better in workouts. And so what I was doing was I was ordering all these tests, these tests that were predominantly re recommended by people like Tim Ferriss, et cetera. And so for my 30th birthday, and this kind of gets into the point where we switch to what I'm doing now, for my 30th birthday, I order what I called the kitchen sink of tests. I finally found this one doctor in Singapore who said, you know, I, I know exactly what you're going through. I'm going to help you order all these tests that you want, et cetera, et cetera. You know, these were things like advanced cholesterol tests, DEXA scans, but also a calcium score. And so what was interesting about that was at the age of 30, I got back a test that told me I had calcium in my heart. Hmm. And what that meant was, is that I was in the 95th percentile of risk for someone my age for a cardiovascular event that is. And so you can imagine being 30 years old and being faced with this information that you should potentially make some sort of change. And with that being said, what I did was I decided that rather than follow the traditional route, which was to diagnose, dismiss, and come back in five years, I wanted to unpack it. I wanted to fix it. And so I left my job in Singapore. I moved to one of my favorite cities in Europe and proceeded to unpack that 
that disease. And as I began to improve my condition, as I began to improve myself, I began to focus better, I began to work better, I began to perform better in exercise. And as a result, former colleagues were asking me to help them. The former colleagues became clients, and that's really how the business got started. Hmm. Okay, so uh, it was your personal uh, discovery that your lifestyle and your uh, working life was not really supporting your long-term health, and it took you uh, to a position where instead of organizing things that are outside of you, you start organizing things also that are inside of you. Can you tell me a little bit more about that transformation? Kind of the personal story here. Like, I guess like noticing that you have a health condition that could potentially kill you is yeah. already life-changing as it is. It, it is a little life-changing, right? And so for me, this is a question I get asked all the time. How do you tackle this? Well, when I'm looking at something like cardiovascular disease in myself, there were a lot of obvious writings on the wall, Timu. And as I say these, please don't, you know, frown too much and kind of laugh at me and be like, hey, uh, you probably shouldn't have done that. But there are obvious things. I wasn't sleeping very much. From the age of 18 to 30, I slept about four to six hours a night. And couple that with the fact that I never really had a circadian rhythm from those years of 25 to 30, I was traveling all the time. It all starts to add up. And when it all starts to add up, it was then kind of lobbed on top of it, a lot of exercise, too much exercise. And I thought I was healthy because I looked good. I was following whatever diet people recommended. These were things like the ketogenic diet, the paleo diet. I was vegetarian for a day, uh, basic things. And it was clear that what I was doing wasn't right for me. So as I began to reset, you start to look at what are the, the actual things that are right for you, what actually causes it to be right for you. And it requires looking really at the blueprint. And that's how we get into the story of how I found genetics. You know, observing that I'm an early morning preference person, living something like a late evening life was very interesting from a genetics perspective. We also looked at shifting my diet to something that was more, more monounsaturated fat focused. And this allowed me to really unpack this, bring down all of those known markers for cardiovascular disease, and allowed me to perform better. Hmm. Right. So you got interested in epigenetics in addition to genetic tests. Um, what can you tell me about optimizing kind of beyond your current biomarkers? Beyond my current biomarkers. So... I'm, I'm talking about blood work, like, and uh, the risk factors for cardiovascular disease, maybe that you you measured for. And epigenetics is is more about really kind of influencing your gene expression and using your uh, genetic information to yeah. optimize your nutritional status and so on. So is that kind of the last mile that you got into? That was one of the that was actually really one of the starting the starting points was when I had the genetics I had the blueprint I knew where I was supposed to be then I was comparing it to my current lifestyle and I was identifying opportunities these opportunities the obvious ones were hey get more sleep it turns out I wasn't one of those three percent of the population that can get away with less than six hours of sleep per night. There's also things like looking at my diet and sort of tweaking diets and making sure that I wasn't eating as much saturated fat. So these 
the genetics really are the blueprint that allowed me to guide lifestyle change. And of course, you know, and I know that Chronomics and some other companies out there are doing epigenetic testing right now, where we're able to just sort of identify where we are in the sand versus population. Right. I did also the Chronomics test recently at now age of 37, uh, my biological age based on uh, basically genome-wide analysis uh, that takes into account not just telomere length, but the number of other factors shows that I'm 35. And I, I had a pretty much similar kind of busy life as you had, not in finance, but in the world of startups from the age of 20 to 30. And that led to a chronic health condition. Uh, it was stress-related and um, probably also a result of sleep deprivation, poor dietary choices. So I pretty much probably... Um, was accelerating my aging uh, during those years. And in the last seven years, I've been doing things that I don't, I don't have any data uh, prior to age of 30 in terms of my longevity markers, but I'm pretty happy to see that um, I'm now aging uh, slower than my chronological age. Now- It's a great feeling, right? It is. And it's very rewarding to feel that you have more energy also to know that you can actually do something to these things yeah. and uh, in the end you get some of the th uh, things that you did wrong uh, forgiven by your body uh, and uh, it can really improve in terms of the condition. So what I learned from Dr. Tom Stubbs and we did a live show with him, the recording is, is also available uh, on the Packer Summit Facebook page, is that um, things like early exposure to tobacco smoke or um, industrial um, uh, kind of cities and urban cities where you have a lot of pollution. In my case, it, I'm in the uh, one percentile of people, uh, which is pretty much people who are living close to nature and so on, who are not exposed to these kind of factors in these times. So even though I've lived in urban cities, I visit them frequently, I can see it from my biological tests that uh, it's not having that much of an impact, at least when it's compared to larger populations. So definitely these kind of things that you can't feel, you can see them in your immediate kind of uh, experience of being alive can have a tremendous effect in, uh, 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 in a really deep, cellular level and the level of the DNA that um, you can optimize for. Now, you come from a background of um, uh, being, a, being a vice president, top executive in a bank you know, on the financial sector. And that world is like many other professions in, in modern time, is all about productivity. It's all about getting things done. And to me, it seems like there is a pretty unhealthy culture of um, productivity there, which is, uh, they call it high performance culture, and they're aiming for a high performance culture. But it's not a healthy high performance culture. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience in the particular bank you worked at? Um, 
how how did you see that? Like people really pushing the boundaries, uh, thinking they are high performance and not really being. Sure. So I'll share a little bit about my experience both in New York and Singapore, because I think both of those jurisdictions in particular uh, tend to push the limits very, very high. And so let's talk about New York. That's where I did my analyst years in investment banking. Everything you've heard about being an analyst in investment banking is true. I've worked multiple days in a row. I've slept underneath my desk. I've spent most of my week in the office to the tune of 80 to 100 plus hours a week. That level of performance, especially at the analyst level, is very, you very quickly come to find that your performance dwindles. And so when we look at what my performance was, by the end of that particular week, I couldn't edit a pitch book, I couldn't do anything. My general cognitive capacity to apply myself was pretty low. I wasn't able to focus, I wasn't able to make right decisions. And this is something that we're gonna talk about later when it comes to uh, things like bandwidth poverty. And so, Fast forward to when I moved to Singapore. There you have a resource constraint. You don't have enough people to get what you need to get done and you're expected to do what you need to do. And that resource constraint forces you to think differently, particularly in my case when I was on the road all the time. And so for me, what it enabled me to do being on the road was to apply a lot of these theories into my life and use them in a way that made my team as well as myself more effective. Hmm. Right. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the ideas of being a high performer and a productive person in a typical corporation and where they go wrong? Sure. And we work right now with a number of different high performing professionals. These are your entrepreneurs, technology companies, financial companies. These are CEOs and people who just generally have an ambition to do more. And if you think about where people start with productivity, they think that they're able to do so and so much. They're able to focus and get so much done throughout the day. And the traditional way to get more done is to expand your work hours. And that's generally what we see with the people that we work with. They're already working 10, 12, sometimes even 14 to 16 hour days easily. And what we see is that these people are trying to figure out why their memory isn't what it, what, what it used to be, why they're unable to create something to perfection very quickly, and why they're not even able to sleep at night, which is really the, the generation of the external brain. Right. So there's physiological effects uh, that come to play. Now, all right, let's dive deep deeper into today's topic for developing an external brain for better performance. So based on everything that you've learned, why do you find it important to have an external brain? Is this brain not enough? <laughs> it's a good question, right? And I think the term external brain, we're not talking about uploading our minds to a computer interface here. What we're talking about is giving you a resource to produce something called leverage. And let's go back to the people whom I've served. And these are, again, your entrepreneurs, CEOs, etc. What they face on a given day is 
stakeholders asking them for things. They face people demanding their time. They face a list of tasks that they need to get done in order to meet the next quarter's goals. And in order to get all of that done, what do they do? They expand out their time in the office. They expand their time that they're working. And so when they go home, there's a whole myriad of tasks that they don't even really tackle during the day and they're not capturing them properly. And so when these guys wake up in the middle of the night and can't figure out why they can't get back to sleep, it's a lot of this sort of rumbling around your mind that you're not able to get things done. Right. So there is several uh, things in the, in the biking community that is thrown around as a solution to this. One of them is basically writing things down so that mm -hmm. in the evening you just record all the loose thoughts that you have so out of your mind uh, gives you the peace so that you can rest and the state in which you go to sleep is the state in which you wake up so if you go to sleep worrying about your day the moment when you wake up that's still what's going on in your mind now when you get those things out of your mind and maybe you're grateful for the things that you achieved that day that's kind of the beat at which you will wake up as well. So uh, what else could we do like in terms of uh, not just having all those things circulating in our minds and, and occupying our attention and things that we have completely ignored uh, because we're so busy? Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about bandwidth poverty. Is that a term you're familiar with, Tamu? Bandwidth poverty? poverty? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me. So bandwidth poverty, we're all familiar with time poverty, which means we just don't have time. We're hopefully not that familiar with monetary poverty, which means we don't have money. But bandwidth poverty is something that actually, I believe Science Magazine, and I'll send you the link afterwards, produced uh, some research on it, and, or at least reported on it. And bandwidth poverty is something that is very typical among that executive crowd. They get inundated with those tasks that I alluded to earlier. And all of a sudden, there's this experience of overwhelm where they cannot focus on anything else. And if they can't focus on anything else, then really they start making mistakes. And so bandwidth poverty, what we're talking about there is how do we escape it? And the external brain, simply put, it has really two components to it. The external brain is first, how do we relieve that anxiety and get you out of bandwidth poverty? And then second, how do we take you and give you leverage? And so when we're looking through the external brain and what we can do, we start with a little bit of something that you may be familiar with, which is one of the initial strategies from David Allen's Getting Things Done. And what we're doing there is we're emptying the mind. We're emptying the mind on a piece of paper or your secretary or you know, your app, your to-do list app, if you will. And so what we're doing is we're carving out dedicated time to get what's in our brain into some sort of storage service. And that storage service in a way serves a lot like your journal, except for it's an active storage bank that you're able to really recall and use going forward right so okay uh david allen's getting things done so that could be yeah. one of the solutions here now there are several others uh that 
that we can also dive deeper into. But uh, the idea that you have a to-do list in David Allen's work, you're basically splitting that up into buckets. So there is buckets for things that require immediate attention, and there are buckets for things that you can postpone or things that you need to delegate and things that you're waiting for someone else to complete. So kind of organizing things based on the context instead of um, project. Uh, I mean, you have projects also as one bucket, but in the end, the idea is that uh, most tasks are too big. So your task might be to record this podcast, but that's not really the task. The task can be split into so many multiple steps that lead into actually recording and live streaming this podcast. So splitting it up uh, helps you to pay attention to the things that are really involved in doing it. So if you need to change your tires, it's not that you have just that, but you have basically get your car, drive to a uh, place where it can be done, uh, change the tires, get a you know replacement car maybe in meanwhile, and then drive it back home once you get the notification that it's it's done. Now it can be split up further. Now another way to think about it is that uh, you should also have not to do lists. Uh, so becoming conscious about things that you shouldn't be doing, and becoming conscious about the things that you want to be doing, and. Uh, one thing that I like to add here is, in addition to a not to do list, is a to be list. Uh, so, things that you want to become as a human being, so that you pay attention to things uh, in terms of tasks that are actually helping you to develop and not just get into uh, the hamster wheel uh, doing the same thing over and over again, but that you're actually improving and maybe doing the things that you enjoy. So, so would you agree on this? Uh Absolutely. And I think you touched on something that's very important. The general to-do list is useless. And yes, I did just say before that you should dump your entire brain into a to-do list. Let me expand a little bit on that. So if your to-do list is worthless, how do we transform it into something that is of use? You've mentioned it already. And that is really taking it and making it into a next actions list. And so rather than saying, hey, I want to read War in peace, I want to read Atlas Shrugged, and I want to read some sort of religious text that's well over a thousand pages, well, that's not realistic. And those items sort of linger on that to-do list to making it a little bit worthless. And so why don't we just reframe those into next actions, which is read 10 pages of War and Peace, read five pages of Atlas Shrugged, read however many pages, etc. And so by framing those into next actions, you can actually put it into something that's useful to you. The other thing that I like, and this requires looking at a task manager that is a little bit better than most of them out there. And Tamu, I'm sure you have experience with this. There's thousands of task managers out there. Yeah. So, 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 wanna... so, so tell me about some of your favorite ones. Sure. So when we look at task managers, let me talk about the why in terms of why I recommend the ones that I do. Uh, when we look at task managers, what I'm looking for is the ability to add quickly. I want it to be accessible across platforms. So that could be Mac, PC, iPhone, uh, Android, as well as Windows Phone. God help you if you have one of those. But looking at just the ability to go across platform, add quickly, but also prioritize and add tags. And 
prioritizing and add tags allows me to manage for my cognitive capacity on any sort of given day. And so when I look at those tags and the tags that I particularly want to add to everything, it's things like I'm tagging for difficulty. Is it easy, average, or challenge? I'm tagging for the time that it's gonna take. Is it gonna take 10 minutes or less, or is it gonna take 30 minutes or 60 minutes plus? I'm tagging for the location. Where am I able to actually get this thing done? Is it online? Is it Amazon? Is it in Helsinki, Finland on November 1st and 2nd? What's my priority here? Is it one, two, three, or four, one being my highest priority? And then I'll also add a tag for some days or waiting for, just because it allows me to track things that I'm waiting for for other people. And then finally, I'll add tags to really put things in, classify them into projects. And this gets to my last sort of recommendation as to how you should select your to-do list. Being able to organize your to-dos by project and category allows you to be a lot more effective in what you're getting done. And so with that in mind, there's a few to-do lists out there that work really well. The one that I use is Todoist, and that's because I have an Android phone. Things works very well if you have iOS. There's other ones like AnyDo, which you have to do a little bit of more customization for when it comes to building something like an external brain. But these two in particular are very effective for what we're trying to accomplish when we're creating an external brain. Right. I actually also used Todoist. I also nice. had uh, previously used Things. I thought Things is also pretty good. Uh, but Todoist is even better because of the integrations and the APIs that you can have so, so that you can kind of circle around the different tasks into different systems. Now, I've used other tools also like Asana and a um, bunch of other, other methods for recording tasks. But in the end, Todoist has been pretty useful. Also, I like the mobile apps are pretty good. Yeah. Um, I use that together with uh, Rescue Time that tracks my uh, usage of time at a computer. And on Rescue Time, you have a function called Focus Time that basically is kind of um, one way to set up a Pomodoro technique. So, yep. so, so if you want to have 20 minutes of uninterrupted time working on something specific and you wouldn't be going to social media while you do that, uh, I would turn on the Focus Time on Rescue Time so that I can you know, do anything else but what I'm supposed to be doing. And it also records that as um, as focus time that I was I was trying to achieve for. So it blocks out my access to the things that I've categorized and figure out to be distractive, distractive to to my work. Now, do you also use something like Pomodoro or some other techniques to to kind of then actually yeah. do the things that you do? Let's talk about those techniques because there's what I use, and then there's what the our ideal client is able to use. I think they're both very important. So I use a combination of something called deep work as well as the Pomodoro technique. And I'll define both here in a second. But let's look at what an executive's lifestyle is like. They wake up every day, they probably have a couple of kids that they need to get to school. They already are getting emails very early in the morning. They need to they need to answer those emails and be really respondent to these key stakeholders. But the question is, is how frequently? And so we just mentioned two different techniques here. There's deep work and then there's Pomodoro. And I actually think that the two are pretty related. 
And so deep work was popularized by Cal Newport in his book of the same name, but it looks at carving out large blocks of time to focus on what matters to you most. Now there's people throughout history who are very famous for doing this, but the sort of corollary or correlation to that is the Pomodoro technique. And this one was actually developed by a guy who found an Italian tomato, or sorry, a tomato timer, and built out essentially interval training for productivity. And so rather than having three plus hours of just dedicated space to do work, you're having 25 to 30 minute sprints. I bring both of those up because in the life of an executive, where you don't really have much time, the Pomodoro technique can be very, very effective. You just block out whether it's 25 minute Pomodoros or even 45 or up to 90 minute Pomodoros and really just work your day through that. You can actually schedule meetings inside of Pomodoro. You can do a lot of work inside of Pomodoros. Myself, I like to use deep work first thing in the morning and then a series of Pomodoros later on in the day. But you mentioned time management and I think because you mentioned it, you got me really excited because have you ever seen one of these? This is a, a device called the Timular. Are you familiar with it? Timular? Uh, how do you spell that? It's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Okay. I don't know about that. Uh, what, I use, what I use for my uh, kind of interval workouts or work hours is uh, something called Pomodon app. Pomodon done app integrates with Todoist mm -hmm. and a bunch of other tools. And it's something that I use to schedule my intervals. And it's what it also does when I get away from my computer uh, or I'm not touching anything for a while, it also asks me what I've been up to. And uh, so then I can record also, for example, that I had a meeting or uh, I went for lunch and, and other things that then end up into into kind of the digital footprint of what I've been up to. It kind of reminds me to make a recording on the things that I did. So it kind of creates a little bit of more, more uh, of a uh, feeling of uh, presence and that you know what you're up to. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, uh, yeah, so... When I do in interrupt myself, I notice sometimes like, oh, okay, so that thing reminds me that I interrupted myself because I got away from the thing that I was supposed to be doing. But um, let's get back to your fancy little cube. So what does that mean? <laughs> the fancy little cube. So Timular is a very similar, I guess you can say, tool to rescue time. And it allows me to flip it on various sides to determine what I'm doing now and then track my time based on that. And what I've found is, is because, look, for a lot of people, uh, they don't need the technology, they don't need the supplements, they don't need the, the food, et cetera. They already have good, good ideas, but most people need a, a technology or a tool, if you will, to help them really adhere to doing this. And so when you're first getting started in time management, it's, I mean, Drucker said this himself, it's very necessary to actually track your actual time. And so frankly, whether it's rescue time or, you know, the time you are, both of them are great to really just tell you where your time goes. And that's where you can start making changes. Right. So um, I want to uh, actually play an insert by our friend, Seam Lund. Uh, good old Sam. Yeah. So 
let's let's play, play a little uh, insert on the Eisenhower matrix. This is a pretty simple technique how people can figure out what is urgent and what really matters in, in terms of doing things. And, and we can have a little chat on that. In a 1954 speech, the US President Dwight Eisenhower said, I have two kinds of problems, the urgent and the important. The urgent are not important, and the important are never urgent. That was his most fundamental principle of time management. Important tasks are activities that yield outcomes that lead us to achieving our goals. Urgent tasks require our immediate attention because of the consequences are also immediate. Think of them as the difference between having a fire in your kitchen versus making a fire in the fireplace. Urgent things force you to put out that fire as soon as possible, but it's still important to stoke the furnace to heat up the house. Here is the Eisenhower's principle of time management in order of importance. Number one, urgent and important. Do it now. This is the point where you yourself have caught on fire and you need to put it off immediately. These are crises, deadlines and other pressing problems right in your face. Number two, important but not urgent. These are the activities that contribute to your greater goals. This is where you want to spend the majority of your time, improving yourself, strategizing, thinking of ways how to become more effective, etc. Number three, urgent but not important. This quadrant includes all of the distractions, interruptions, and meetings of other people that don't contribute towards your achievements or your goals. Number four, not urgent and not important. This is the final quadrant that is equally as essential as the first one. It's not about how much important stuff you do if you still continue to do the unimportant ones. These activities include procrastination, checking social media, watching TV, or any other distraction. If you value your time and want to reach your potential, then you have to ruthlessly cut these things off. These principles of time management already will set your priorities straight and allow you to determine the tasks that are most important to you. So there you have it, uh, the Eisenhower matrix. So many great leaders, um, including former U.S. presidents and probably how many other countries, they are running a really tight schedule. If you think of your time, half of your day goes into just maintenance of being alive. Uh, so you sleep and you eat and uh, you do other, th other forms of uh, recovery, and, um, or even more actually. And then you do your work. If you take your work day, if you have eight hours, you're not going to be productive for the full eight hours. So Pomodoro technique is great for kind of making sure that you focus on things and uh, getting things done uh, with David Allen's work is, is great for thinking about how you structure your work and put them into buckets and organize them based on context. But also when it comes to figuring out what you should be doing, what should you delegate, I guess many leaders, many managers are very easily uh, drawn towards becoming micromanagers. So they do things that they shouldn't be doing. They don't delegate. Um, they, they take the low-hanging fruit instead of attacking the big problems first. Uh, now using a technique like that makes you reflect on the things that are actually really important and uh, necessary uh, to get done and it prioritizes your unique input and capability um, where you start to reflect who else is better at doing a certain task instead of you. Now that's a simple technique 
have you personally used the Eisenhower matrix or any other form of kind of a, a reflecting in in terms of what should you be doing? Sure. So if you look at there's predominantly two things that I use uh, in my everyday life to make sure I'm prioritizing and to make sure I'm getting the right things done. Because after all, if you're just getting things done, is that really useful? Because you can get things done on social media and that's not going to be the most effective way to spend your time. And the two strategies that I use, one are objectives and key results. And then the second one, and that predominantly is more of a goal setting exercise so that I manage my quarters as to what I need to get done in order to achieve certain goals. And then the second thing is a point of reflection that I like to take every day. And Gary Keller actually wrote an entire book about this, but it's essentially, uh, the book's called The One Thing. And the idea is, is how do I identify or really how do I focus on that one thing to just really, the one thing that matters most, that adds leverage, and maybe either makes the rest of the things not matter or makes the rest of the things easier. And so when we look at those two in combination, the objectives and key results kind of narrow my frame as to what needs to get done. And you can see there's an entire book on that called Measure What Matters uh, by John Doerr, who's actually a very famous venture capitalist in California. And it's implemented in institutions like Google, uh, but also, the one thing is just a way to focus every single day on what is that, that Pomodoro, that deep work session going to be about? What are you going to accomplish that is going to make the most difference in your life? I've used something called the productivity planner. So people mm -hmm. can Google on the productivity planner. It's basically a method through which you can think about the one thing that you should be doing or the three top things for that day. And, uh, the way how you think about your day is instead of looking at your full to-do list and thinking like, oh, which part I'm going to be starting like diving, you know, into you, uh, instead you take a break in the morning and you think about what is really essential to be done uh, today. So what are, for example, the three things that I should be doing that would give me the greatest leverage for this day in terms of happiness and getting the results for the week. And it also helps you to reflect on not just for that day, but for that week uh, and for that month mm -hmm. or quarter or maybe a year. So so that you have like three big goals for the year, three big things for the month, three big things for that week and three big things for that particular day that all drive you towards that bigger goal for that year. So kind of helps you to pay attention to the things that are most important and um, it also uh, in terms of time management people tend to over or underestimate how long it takes to do something and it's part of the training of using a productivity planner is that you become better and more accurate in estimating how long it takes to do something because before you start doing it you estimate how long it's going to take in in uh, um, blocks of uh, Pomodoro, so in 20-minute blocks. Mm -hmm. And in the end, once you complete the task, you uh, write down how many blocks it actually took. And if you do that over and over again, you become better at first at splitting up your big task instead of it being like four hours. You're going to take the one big thing to be 
maybe four Pomodoros, like 20 mm-hmm. minute chunks. And in the end, you also become better at estimating uh, how long it's going to take. So it become, you become more conscious about um, how to break things down, how to estimate how long they take. And also you become more conscious about uh, attacking the most important things first. And in the evening, when you reflect back on that day, uh, you can be grateful for achieving at least one thing on that list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you have a lot of things to do, uh, that's one easy way. So you basically filter down your already filtered to-do list of all the possible things that you can do to the three things that are actually on your to-do list for that day. Absolutely. And you take it up, fold it into a paper, and you put it in your pocket, and that's what you focus on for the day. That yeah. way you can remain offline as much as possible. Yeah. It's amazing, Tamu. You, you nailed it on the head. You know, we, we as a society are very good at visionary thinking, but taking visionary thinking and going into action is another thing. And what's interesting about a lot of these dreams that we have, a lot of these actions that we have, is that by doing the additional research and trying to boil it down into what actually needs to get done, it can become a very useful tool. And we can actually take something like, hey, I want to be a millionaire, and boil that down into just little itty-bitty steps and allow us to really just determine, okay, how many phone calls do we need to make the next day if I want to be a millionaire in three years? And all that takes is really dedication, focus, and thinking. Right. So um, uh, one, one question that I have in terms of the external brain is that, okay, so now we have recorded down, we have made explicit, we have externalized the things that we should be doing. Now, if that's the case, uh, um, are there some tools that you would recommend that would then actually make your external brain run itself? So basically doing the tasks that are on that list that, that you shouldn't be doing. Um, so, so do you use something to automate the things or someone else to split things up? Uh, do you use human or non-human appliances there? So. So kind of uh, thinking about the external brain, how it actually starts doing things instead of just being a um, hard drive where you put things. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the second aspect of the external brain, which is how do we create leverage from this? And I'm going to talk about one that is a little bit manual to start, but then I'll get into some of those tools that we can use to create leverage through APIs and other things. But the external brain itself is you know once you've emptied your to-do list hopefully you've now created some mind space to start thinking a little bit differently and so when we start thinking a little bit differently and start looking about how to build differently and think differently in order to create leverage in our lives that requires looking at production a little bit differently as well and so when we're delivering something to a client or to you know, a business partner or something, traditionally it's thought of as, okay, I'm going to deliver you some sort of final product and that's the only thing. But what if we kind of flipped this on its head and started thinking in terms of components? So rather than building sort of a presentation, a keynote presentation, I know you give quite a lot of them, Temu, rather than building a keynote presentation, focus on that next slide that next section of slides, that whole deck, 
and focus on it in terms of components. And so by building into components, you now have created some sort of momentum, which creates positivity, frankly, and allows you to realize that these components are leverageable and they are evergreen. So that once they are done, you're not just using it for this one final end product. What you're actually doing is producing something that can be used 10, 100 times over. And so component thinking is really how we make that external brain very, very useful. And a lot more of the details of how to do this, I'll cover in the presentation in Helsinki. But to answer your other question, which is one about how to get some of these to-dos done sort of automatically, there's other tools out there like Zapier, and you mentioned the integrations of Todoist. It's a great one. Uh, you get Ift as well. And those connect you to other apps. So for instance, my pocket highlights go straight into Evernote. My reading, I can do Web Clipper with Evernote and it'll go right in there. You can use Notion as well, of course. But using a lot of these tools to automate those tasks is very possible. Right. So if you take something like uh, Zapier, so Zapier is basically an API that mm -hmm. um, a web-based tool that you can use to take in, for example, the Todoist items, and you can filter them out based on, for example, if you put a specific category, it will trigger something else to happen. So uh, one thing that you can use Sapir for is to delegate. So when you put something on your to-do list, Sapir will send an email with the content of the to-do item to someone, like your virtual assistant or your team member, etc. Or it could go into uh, some some system that then basically triggers automated scripts uh, and functions around that. So automating as much as you can of your work. Um, there is um, there is this idea that you should, in terms of your work, you should automate. Uh, you should first you should outsource all the things that are something that either machines or other humans can do. If you can't outsource those. Uh, you automate them in, in some way uh, so that uh, there is as little manual work necessary to do. Now, if there is manual work needed, then you optimize. So you optimize the manual work that you need to do in such a way, let's say if you need to process a lot of images, you first automate uh, some pre-processing and then you create, let's say, some structures or, or um, or a sequence of ta uh, items that you need to do in terms of getting every single image into a state where you need them to be. So you have a process around that. So you optimize the process itself. And often through the process of uh, outsourcing and automating and optimizing, you figure out that a lot of things can in the end be done by someone else but you. And as, as, as humans, we are kind of selfish. We think that we are the best one, the best person doing something or that it might take too long to outsource something. So mm -hmm. when you do something over and over again, repeatedly, that's when you start, should start thinking like, is it really, um, does it really take more time to outsource uh, instead of uh, uh, you actually doing it? So when there is repetitive tasks, you can definitely do that. When there's complex cognitive tasks that you know that a better person, let's say it's a bookkeeping related task, so a bookkeeper would probably be able to figure it out, you can easily automate and outsource also those things. Now, do you use something else than Sapir? Do you use like virtual assistants and and uh, 
uh, maybe some other yeah, tools? Sure. Oh, of course. Uh, you know, in terms of virtual assistants, we use Magic quite a bit. We use uh, a number of different programs. I mean, I mentioned Ift earlier, which is effectively the same thing as Zapier. But we use, uh, similar to you, uh, Process Street, which allows us to run through processes very fast, uh, whether that be uh, getting it delegated to a virtual assistant, getting it delegated to some member of the team. But Process Street allows us to document processes and then op really seek to optimize those processes. Uh, that really, with the objective there, with any processes, how do we get the right person doing it? Uh, and how do we get them doing it as fast as possible? Right. I also uh, have used Fancy Hands and... Um... Uh, there is, I'm trying to remember now which one I also use. Uh, anyway, so I've also used uh, uh, 99 things. Uh, yeah. uh, I've used um, also Upwork, upwork.com. It's yeah. great and for, we use, yeah, yeah. We use things like, um, I, I mean, if we're starting to talk about design and everything, we use Design Pickle for all of our design needs and we can get, the idea of geographic arbitrage is a brilliant one. And so if we're able to outsource a lot of our business needs to somewhere else that's a little bit cheaper and allow our people to focus on what is core and good to them, then we're able to really perform at our absolute best. So going back to that analogy of really looking at uh, bandwidth poverty and just saying, how do we remove bandwidth poverty? Well, it's getting people in the right position to do what they want to do and are best at. And so we're, when we're able to remove those distractions, that bandwidth poverty is no longer an issue. Right. Okay. So, uh, so we have covered a lot of ground here, and mm -hmm. um, we touched some technologies, some processes, a way of thinking about these things. You also spoke about knowledge warehouse. Uh, that how do you kind of capture things, build a warehouse? Maybe maybe do it searchable, whatever. Like, do you use some other tools like that uh, through which you kind of uh, track everything you've done uh, that makes it searchable? Do you have like something something in there for for that external brain that you can kind of look into if you need to? Sure. So one element that we haven't really spent too much about is really how do we build that knowledge warehouse and. What is that knowledge warehouse? So in terms of tools, there's plenty of them out there, but the one I use is Evernote. There's also Notion, Bear, and a few others. And so what you're looking at in terms of your tools there is something that allows you uh, to have a web clipper, for instance. But also what I like about Evernote, and the only reason why I haven't switched to Notion yet, and Notion guys, if you're listening to this, this one's for you. Uh, if you, with Evernote, you can forward emails. Uh, to your Evernote, and you can have it stored there. But what Evernote is, is it has OCR function, which allows us to recognize text within documents. It allows us to recognize text within different elements. And if we can keep that organized, a la similar to our to-do list, what we're able to do with Evernote is to create really synergistic elements of work. And so as we're developing these different pieces, these different components, we'll be able to search for these components, but also be able to see related components to that. And that's where we're able to really kind of get that pattern recognition and that search function in Evernote. And you're able to use these things in terms of components to build much faster. Hmm. 
Right. So uh, I've, I've, I've used um, some tools to search everything more effectively, including everything that I ever checked online. Uh, and uh, I remember that the tool, the name is Atlas. Uh, so Atlas, at least it runs on Mac. Uh, it kind of indexes everything on your system and also everything you ever saw and it makes it all searchable. So uh, I know also that in the quantified self community, people have uh, some document cameras that they carry with them that is maybe taking a photograph every every minute. Yeah. And it makes I mean, with yeah, and then they search basically their life, what they saw. And um, the future, where do you see this going? Like we are capturing what we do, we are capturing our output, we are capturing our input, and um, basically our whole life becomes like a virtual searchable database it's kind of uh, scary also because you're a walking big brother that uh, records everything that you see and hear and do uh, so being around you means um, being potentially uh, recorded in one way um, and uh, so i mean it's, that's already happening if i send emails to you or if i'm sending you a facebook message or a whatsapp message like all those things will be in a database and searchable from your context. Uh, so what used to be private is now becoming uh, analyzed by computers and potentially also public if we get some data breaches. So are you, are you not worried about the extent um, of uh, privacy concerns around uh, all these different sensors and tools and trackers and APIs that are, you know, bring you know circling around uh, potentially uh, some of the secrets of your business uh, that will be um, momentarily exposed to external systems that can be hacked also of course that's a concern but i think in this day and age how do i handle this question properly Personally, my own privacy, I know that it, it's because I have, for instance, a Facebook account or an Instagram account, a lot of my privacy is somewhat compromised. That's personal privacy. Now, when it comes to work privacy, it's tantamount and key of, of key importance to me. And so when it comes to security, of course, you have to select you know, best of breed softwares in terms of security. You have to change your passwords regularly. But yes, of course, it's a concern. It's something that I think about quite a bit. You know, We deal with a lot of sensitive data and how to make sure that that data is stored securely and not available to the highest bidder is something that I think about quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, there especially, are areas that concern me. Yeah, especially uh, when we start, especially when we start working on APIs and we are using external services. Um, I, I like what they do in military. So there's different classifications for information that yeah. uh, there are low levels of uh, classification and then there's higher levels. And the very highest is basically that you're doing that on a computer that's not connected to anything else and it's in a separate room even. Um, but in the end, like we live in an extremely connected world and I'm an optimist when it comes to the use of this information. So from a few perspectives, so so that there are not really that that, that huge secrets. Um, uh, so instead of making extreme the, everything extremely private as a default, what Facebook has teached us is that they are making things more open by default and then you choose the things that are more private uh, 
And uh, so in the future, it definitely requires more attention to uh, the question like, is this something that could be used by external parties in a wrong way? Mm-hmm. Now, th- now, that's a discussion we definitely can have in, on this podcast with a with an expert on this field. <laughs> but it's, it's good to remember that um, once you start automating things, once you start uh, giving access to human or non-human appliances that are external to you, that are basically um, distributing your work, you're also distributing some of the things that we considered private in a previous world. And um, that is definitely something that uh, we have to pay attention to, that we are kind of going back to a tribal society where everyone knows everyone else's stuff and we are together in this game of keeping the tribe alive. Uh, Now, the concern here is that not all parties know who this information is being exposed to. Because, I mean, it's not just the tribe members, it's all kinds of other tribes that get access to these things. So we live in an extremely interesting world when it comes to this external brain. Uh, and the more we use things like mobile phones and, and, and you know, different web apps and mobile apps and APIs and cloud services to analyze our data, we're basically making the world more transparent. We're making it more open and also potentially more easy to compromise uh, things that we considered private previously. Now, in exchange for better productivity, I guess that's kind of what it is. If you want better productivity, you want to speed up tasks and all that, um, certain degree will compromise some of the things that we considered uh, uh, to be privacy. Now, that's another philosophical topic. Um, And I know I'm very aware we're kind of running into the end of the show. Um, And I don't want to, you know, uh, end on a, on a kind of a skeptical or negative uh, high point. I want to I wanna kind of um, jump into some of the promising things. So with all the things that you've done to optimize your productivity and performance uh, by using uh, all these tools and technologies to split your tasks and outsource them and automate them, uh, like what is your advice? If someone wants to start from somewhere, what are the books that they should check out? Uh, what are the apps that they should perhaps download? Uh, and what are perhaps th- the methods uh, that they should consider? So we mentioned a few of them, but we can summarize them. Or if you have something else, bring it up. Yeah, sure. So Effective Executive is where I would start because that's a great one in terms of time management. That's by Peter Drucker. Uh, Getting Things Done by David Allen is a great book as well. I like Measure What Matters by John Doerr. And The One Thing by Gary Keller. A lot of the other things that we've discussed today in terms of the Eisenhower matrix and those things, there's websites out there that can explain those to you. Uh, In terms of the technology, I think it's getting yourself a to-do list that you are very comfortable with actually using and using on an ongoing basis. The way that these things work and the way that you know people like yourself, Tamu, are able to continue to use them effectively over time is by getting continued use. So finding a to-do list that you like, that you enjoy, is some somewhere where I would start. If you're looking to block out distractions, uh, things like freedom are a great way to block out distractions on the internet. We're looking at uh, also Technologies like Brain FM, which actually I got to say, Tamu, you actually turned that turned me on to that on my podcast about a year and a half ago, which allows you to focus by just simply giving you a music uh, or giving you music in your ears. Then looking at in terms of measuring time, Timular, 
rescue time. Uh, there's numerous other technologies out there, but I think that's enough to get people started. Absolutely. And uh, if people want to learn more about uh, your work, uh, obviously they can come over to Biohackers Summit. It will be the Absolutely. first and second of November. You're going to give uh, out your best performance so far in terms of how to optimize your productivity live on stage. And uh, I mean, if you can join in person in Helsinki, you can also uh, register for the live stream at biohackersummit.com. Uh, check that out. Uh, but I definitely recommend people coming over because two days of uh, just amazing content, not just uh, Boomer, but but many others like Max Lugover, uh, Anthony DiClemente, uh, Molly Malouf, uh, even Mad Ventures and the Biker's Handbook orders will be there. So if you are into optimizing your day and your work day uh, and getting the most out of it uh, in terms of health, performance, and well-being, Boomer is going to be there. Now, uh, if people want to learn more about you, Boomer, and, and your work, uh, maybe reach out to you, where should they go? Absolutely. Go to the best place to reach me is decodingsuperhuman.com. That's the website. But also you can get us on Instagram. We're most active on LinkedIn and you can find us there. Right on. And there is an interview that you did uh, with me uh, on your podcast. So if people search for the superhuman, decoding superhuman podcast and Arna, they will find also the interview where where we also discussed Brain.fm. Now, uh, with that, thank you very much for coming to the show. And I'm really looking forward to meeting you in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, this Absolutely, Tamu. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Have an amazing weekend, uh, you and rest of our viewers online. And uh, have an extremely productive, healthy rest of the week and weekend. See you later.